Good morning, everyone. If you're out in the hall, come on in. We're going to uh, get started on Module 3, Session 6 in just a moment. Anybody not recovered from Steadfast yet? Always takes about a week to go, oh, okay, we're normal again. I hope all of you enjoyed uh, Carl and Nate last week. That was a real... A real treat to have them come up here. So while uh, a few more are settling in, here's what we're doing today. We are on Module 3, Session 6, which is the last uh, Bible survey for Module 3, the way this is set up. We don't quite make it through the Old Testament yet. When we get to Module 4, we'll finish up the Old Testament. We're going to do the first six of the 12 Minor Prophets But after today, for the next uh, three times together or so, we're going to be doing uh, kind of an applied theology, a little special course, mini course, three weeks on evangelism. And it's something we want to do every once in a while. Um, We've taught evangelism in in various ways. uh, And while you're getting settled in, we'll just kind of give you a little bit of a preview The best way to teach evangelism is not to teach evangelism. The best way to teach evangelism is to preach the gospel so often, so clearly, with so much detail, to saturate the church in the gospel that it becomes a part of who you are. Then you're not relying on, okay, wait a minute, point number one, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It it becomes such a part of who you are. So... uh, I know that some churches spend a lot of time teaching evangelism. I have found as I study the history of the church that the most effective churches are not the ones so much that study evangelism, but the ones that study the gospel and who know the gospel and are so saturated in what it means to be a Christian. Uh, You almost can take it to the bank that a local church that spends a lot of time teaching evangelism doesn't spend as much time as they should just simply preaching the gospel. And people who walk in the doors, the, the, the irony is, is that the, the, the preacher and the church as a whole has learned to please people by not hitting sin too hard, by uh, trying to be really, really nice to them and ease them into the kingdom to soften the gospel, if that's possible. But then on the other side of the campus, you have evangelism classes going like crazy so that you can bring people to faith in Christ. How about this? How about just preach the gospel every time you get together? And so we will look at evangelism, and there's some great things to learn. But the best, uh, if you want to call it a method, the best evangelism method is to hear the gospel so continually in your life that you are saved by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And that that just becomes a part of who you are. Because then that leaks out of your life into everyone else's lives. Um, But I'm not impressed with a church that uses a worship service to please unbelievers and then has an evangelism class down the the hall. That's unimpressive. And that is uh, inconsistent. Let me tell you about a church. uh, We're going to read about this church uh, later this morning. The church at Thessalonica. The greatest evangelizing church, other than Philadelphia, which we're also going to look at later today, the greatest evangelizing church in the New Testament. You know how many evangelism classes they had? Zero. You know how much appreciation and love for the gospel they had? Infinite. And they were known as a church. The Apostle Paul said, you're so good at this that every time I get to a city to bring the gospel to a new group of unbelievers, you've already been there. Because all of these Thessalonian business people were, wherever they traveled, Macedonia and Achaia, were just spreading the gospel. And Paul tells them in 1 Thessalonians 1, every time I get to this new city, you've, you've been there before me. And the word has gone out and people are telling me, yes, I have heard this story because of this guy from Thessalonica. So that's how I want to be. So yes, we will study evangelism, but uh, the best way to study evangelism is to study the gospel and to know the gospel. And so that's why every single Sunday we want the gospel uh, to be sung and to be heard. So um, don't think that you have to wait to get the uh, capital M method 
uh, to share the gospel. If you're saved, you know the gospel. And so that's, that's the important thing. Uh, and yes, we'll go over some ideas and, and even some, some conversation starters. But we'll talk about various methods. Uh, how many of you have heard of uh, the way of the master? Okay, well, we'll talk about that. That is a terrible name. It is a way of the master. It is not the way of the master. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of clarify that uh, as well, as well as the use of the law in evangelism, which is a whole different uh, topic altogether. Um, because the way of the master holds people to the Ten Commandments, which is not binding to us. So it's a little bit of a misnomer, but we'll talk about how to use that well. So I just wanted to introduce that next week. I, I always get very excited about this because we do need a fire lit under us sometimes because we live in such a society that we, we see a church on every third corner and we kind of say, well, that's not, not my job anymore. Um, but if you watch the news now, it's our job, isn't it? It is our job. We, we are a post-Christian nation at this point. So uh, we have to share the gospel. But uh, I I get ahead of myself because I get very excited about that. Let's look today at the minor prophets. And, oh, I need my little clicker. Is that, (laughs) it may have have gone somewhere, or I can just go like this. Uh, I think I left it in my office. So today we'll do the minor prophets, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. And the reason we're taking this in two big chunks is because it's kind of like if you understand... All the minor prophets, to a certain degree, you understand each individual one as well, because there aren't a lot of uh, differences. So let's introduce this first, if you can click on to the next one. Um, The minor prophets, more commonly called in Jewish circles, the Book of the Twelve. And I think that's important. The apocryphal book uh, called Ecclesiasticus, written about 190 B.C., it refers to the twelve, thank you very much, Gilbert. It refers to the twelve, uh, these twelve books, and simply names them the twelve prophets. And so that's a legitimate name for this. The Hebrew Bible calls it the book of the twelve prophets. And there's actually two views of how this is, how this is organized in the Hebrew Bible. One view is that it's regarded as a single work, one book with twelve long chapters. The other view is it's 12 separate books. In our English Bible, it is divided out as 12 separate books, um, and that will probably never change. I don't think any publisher of an English Bible would have the courage to uh, rename the 12, the 12 prophets and have chapter 1 be Hosea, chapter 2, Joel, and so forth. So that will probably never happen, but it's important for you to understand that. There's a lot of good evidence for both views, uh, the most important thing to understand is that both are, uh, either view means that, uh, that all 12 books are part of Scripture. They're, they're, that's not disputed. They're all part of Scripture. So as we walk through this, we're just going to hit some really big highlights here because what's more important to me is that you understand uh, what the 12 are all about. And I think that'll be good for you um, as well. So I'm going to put up here just a, a list of the dates and then kind of what the names mean. And again, these slides will be available online. You don't ha- I wouldn't try to write all this down, but you can get it online if you want. Uh, the books cover a 415-year period. It's a long period of time, 845 B.C. to 430 B.C. And you can see uh, even, the, uh, even the, the names of the authors, the Hebrew names are very... Uh, indicative of some of the themes of the books. It's just very, it's interesting. It's not, it's not an airtight argument. You can't say that every name means that's what this book means. But it's just interesting to see that Hosea means salvation. And what is Hosea about? It is about the salvation of Israel. Joel means the Lord is God. And we see uh, that uh, one of the big themes in the book of Joel is God proving to the whole world that he is Lord. You have Amos, uh, who means, which means burden or burden bearer. Uh, Amos is an untrained man who's not a prophet, he's not a priest. He's just a guy. He's just a farmer, basically. And so he carries the burden. God says, you're going to give this message, and I'm going to show you in a minute, the single most important passage to understanding all of the Old Testament is given to a farmer. So he carries a burden. How would you like it if uh, at at 1044, 
somebody came up to you and said, uh, Steve's not going to be here today. You're preaching. What does that feel like? That's a burden, right? How about Obadiah, servant of the Lord? Jonah, the dove. Ironically, Jonah, the most successful preacher in the history of the world, the most successful prophet, and the biggest griper and complainer. Micah, who is like the Lord? We see uh, pointing to Messiah in the book of Micah. You have Nahum, which is comfort. You have Habakkuk, one who embraces. Uh, What did Habakkuk have to embrace? He had to embrace the fact that judgment was coming upon the southern kingdom of Judah, whether he liked it or not. And he didn't like the method that God was going to use, but he had to embrace it. How about Zephaniah? The Lord hides. Haggai, festal one. Haggai is all about the rebuilding of the temple, of being festive before God. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. What does the Lord remember in Zechariah? He remembers all of his promises to Israel. And we get in Zechariah, really pretty much second only to the book of Revelation, our greatest view of the future. And then Malachi, my messenger. Ironically, uh, what is, what's the last thing that Malachi talks about? He talks about one who is like Elijah that's coming. And Malachi ends off uh, with an Elijah type figure and the New Testament starts off with an Elijah-like figure named John the Baptist. So the names to me are interesting. They don't, they're not airtight that they say this is exactly what it means. But I, I think it's, it's helpful to us to know that, that God chose these men very, very carefully. So let's do just the kind of the overall picture of the 12, the book of the 12. Do some of the themes. And then as we go through the six, we'll just zip through those pretty fast because you'll see that they're, they're very similar in so many ways. So if you get these, then you kind of get all 12. Historical and theological themes. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is important. This is mentioned 14 times in the book of the 12. You have in Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, the day of the Lord in and of itself is a huge study. I, I've been tempted someday to preach a series on the day of the Lord uh, I sort of did when we went through the book of Revelation because that's what it is, is about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, is a technical theological phrase that basically speaks of worldwide judgment uh, followed by the restoration of Israel. That's generally speaking the day of the Lord. Now, is there a specific actual physical day or literal day of the Lord that encapsulates that entire concept. We would say that there is. Zechariah 14 describes this day. It's a day like none other where, where there's no, there, the, the day sort of stands still. The weather changes in, in odd ways. The temperature is odd. The, the light is odd. And that's the day that Christ returns. But generally speaking, it also speaks overall of God judging the world and fulfilling uh, his promises to Israel. The phrase is introduced in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, but it's most extensive in the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets give us the most detail. And if you wanted to focus in even more, the theologian for the day of the Lord is Joel. He is the, the theologian and one of the most famous uh, quotes in the book of Joel is uh, the idea that the Lord will return to you the years that the locusts have eaten. And that's a promise of the fulfillment of Israel. Zechariah and Malachi are the last ones to write in the Old Testament, but the, the day of the Lord is still viewed as future. Now that's very important because some have viewed, well, the Babylonian conquest of, of Judah in 586, that was the day of the Lord. Zechariah and Malachi wrote after that. They wrote after that event, and yet the day of the Lord is still future for them. Now, there's arguments as to whether there's both a near fulfillment, such as Babylon, or, and a far fulfillment, or just the eschatological fulfillment in the future. And I think you can make both arguments, because it's pretty clear, and we've talked about this enough that I don't have to go into this a lot. It's pretty clear that many prophecies in the Old Testament have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. We, we see that very clearly, uh, Isaiah 7.14, that, <clears throat> that a son will be born to a virgin, um, to, a, to a young maiden. We see a near fulfillment in Isaiah's day, 
and a far fulfillment, of course, ultimately in Christ. Many examples of near and far fulfillment. But I think the most important thing for us is that whether or not there is a near fulfillment, the far fulfillment has not yet happened. The day of the Lord has not happened. I, I always kind of smile when, uh, when very, very well-meaning Christians and, and pastors say, we, we're experiencing the judgment of God on the earth right now. And that is true to a certain extent. Uh, I, I, I tend to think that the United States of America is too far gone. Um, that we're just going to see degradation happen. And so what's our prayer? Come soon, Lord Jesus, and let's bring as many people with us to heaven as we can. Um, But we kind of smile because if you read what the Bible says about the day of the Lord, we're living in the Garden of Eden compared to that. This is is practically paradise. Uh, So the day of the Lord will be unparalleled. The book of Daniel says that that day will be like none other. So the, the day of the Lord... Is it the Great Tribulation? Yes. Is it the uh, month of the return of Christ as described numerically in Daniel 12? Yes. Is it the actual day that Christ returns? Yes. All of that is encompassed in this idea of the day of the Lord. What's the lesson on the day of the Lord? Don't be there. That's the main lesson. So the day of the Lord, all through uh, the, the 12. I actually think that asking unbelievers to read the Minor Prophets is a great idea because they're terrifying. If you don't know the Lord, you read through these and you go, I don't fully understand this, but I don't want to be there and I don't want to be a part of that. So it's a, it's a great thing to give uh, to an unbeliever. Uh, three chapters in Joel. Just read three chapters. This theme, this, the sin of Israel and Judah, that is all over the Minor Prophets. You have idolatry and spiritual adultery as a major theme, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Why is idolatry likened to spiritual adultery? Well, it it is cheating on God, so to speak. It is going to another God that is no God at all. And so that whole concept, especially in the book of Hosea, Hosea is, is an entire picture using the prophet Hosea, who is to marry a woman of ill repute to demonstrate grace to her as a picture of God demonstrating grace uh, to Israel. Then you also have the theme of social injustices. Now, when I first wrote these notes, uh, we can say social injustice, and we knew what that meant. Now it's been redefined by our culture. So let me, let me define social justice from a godly viewpoint, okay? Social justice from a biblical godly viewpoint is a society that obeys the law of God. That's social justice. And specific to Scripture, social justice was not expected in pagan nations. Why would a pagan nation be expected to be just? Social justice was expected in Israel. So what is social justice from a biblical standpoint? Well, it's obeying the law of God when it comes to, uh, to not engaging in idolatry, to loving your neighbor in ways that Scripture delineates, not in ways that culture delineates. It is tearing my heart out to see professing Christians say that loving your neighbor is wearing a mask and getting vaccinated. That's an unbiblical definition. Loving your neighbor has definitions in Scripture. Don't steal from him. Uh, Be kind to his animals, so to speak, uh, if we had a lot of those now. There are specific delineations. Social justice in Israel was making certain, not through the government, but through society, that there would be, the book of Deuteronomy says, no poor in the land. You know that the Bible gives the method for dealing with poverty, and it is not communism. It is not the redistribution of wealth. It is the expectation that law-abiding citizens love their neighbor enough to leave some leftovers in the fields, to feed the sojourner who is walking through your land, to make sure that you look around you and nobody's going to be in need. That's exactly what happened in the Church of Jesus Christ in Acts 2, wasn't it? That people were selling their goods and giving to the poor in the church because the church said nobody's going to be in need here. So... That's social justice. So when we say the social injustices, this is not defined by the culture. This is defined by God. Social injustices are the 
societal ills and terrible things happening as a result of the nation and particularly the result of the leaders not following the law of God. And what you had in, in described in Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Habakkuk, you had a growing chasm between the, uh, the elite and the poor. In other words, they eliminated the middle class. Do we see that happening today? Absolutely. Those who say that they are all for the poor and all for those who are, have less are the ones who are getting rich off of that notion. And by the way, uh, part of social injustice is the decimation of an economy by overtaxation and by destroying businesses. Did you know that? The Bible is clear about this, that the ultimate right society is one where the economy is thriving. What does God describe as the millennial kingdom economy? Every man owns land, his own fig trees, his own vineyards. There's property ownership, there's business ownership. And so social injustice was the very, very elite taking power for themselves and oppressing those who could not do anything about it. And God hates that. And that brought judgment to Israel. Then you have, that's the next theme, the judgment of Israel and Judah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. You have the restoration of Israel and Judah. This is so important. I I honestly, I don't know how... um, our covenant theology brothers and sisters, how they can walk through the, the 12 and not see the restoration of Israel. The only way they can do it is to redefine Israel as the church. But you have to do hermeneutic gymnastics to make that the case. Um, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But the, if the 12 were just about uh, the day of the Lord and the sin of Israel and Judah and the judgment of Israel and Judah, that wouldn't make sense. That says that God was not able to redeem his own. And so you have this beautiful exclamation point of the restoration of Israel and Judah. And then, like uh, so, many of the, so many of the times when God judges Israel using other nations, when that part is done, then he turns his sights on the other nations. And so that's a major theme as well, the judgment of the nations. You have this in Joel chapter 3, Amos 1 and 2, Obadiah in Jonah, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah 1, Zechariah 14. What does that tell us, by the way? Have you ever heard the notion, well, uh, what is, you know, you know, it's not fair that maybe people have not heard the gospel. How can you judge them if they haven't heard the gospel? You know how God can judge them? Because he's God. And Romans 1 says that we have enough information to seek God. That you can look at the stars, you can look at our planet, and you can say, somebody made this. And so, is God going to judge the nations? Absolutely. Why? Because he has the right to do that. We will never stand in judgment over God. Will God judge someone who has never heard the gospel? Yes. If that is hard for you to deal with, then maybe let's make God bigger in our minds instead of smaller. He has the right to do that. The big question is not, why would God judge somebody who maybe has never heard the gospel? The big question is, why would God not judge you who has heard the gospel and rejected it anyway? Or, or, or why would he let you hear the gospel a thousand times before you finally come to faith in Christ? So that's the bigger question. The bigger question is not, why will hell be filled with sinners? The bigger question is, why will heaven be filled with sinners? That's the, that's the better question. So, God turns his sights on the nations. But again, in the scope of all of Scripture, the beautiful thing is that where do we end up in Revelation 22? We end up with every nation on earth purified and they're all worshipers of God. And so, again, you, you might, by reason of all of Scripture, not only do you have the, the judgment of Israel and Judah followed by the restoration of Israel, but then you have the judgment of the nations followed by the restoration of the nations. I love in the book of Isaiah where God calls Israel my son and Assyria my child and Egypt their brother. Amazing. So if you put all of this together, and by the way, I would encourage you at least one time in your life to sit down with a pot of coffee, not a cup, but a pot of coffee, and read Hosea through Malachi in one sitting. 
and just work your way through it. You know how it reads? It reads like a novel because it's, it is a unit. So just try it one time. Pot of coffee or tea. What's the purpose of the, the 12? Israel's restoration will come after the day of the Lord, the Lord's day of judgment. Israel's restoration will come after the day of the Lord, the Lord's day of judgment. Now, what I'm going to do is just walk through these first six books, and it'll almost sound like I'm repeating myself, because I am. These are so similar in so many ways, and yet it tells the same story from 12 different vantage points, and I think that's, that's useful. Here we go. Hosea. Historical and theological themes. The spiritual adultery of Israel. God consistently equates unfaithfulness to him as spiritual adultery. That's, that's why the picture of God and his people on earth, marriage, the worst thing you can do in marriage is adultery because it reflects what the worst thing you can do with God is. And then you have the theme of the future salvation of Israel. Hosea has a beautiful, beautiful ending to it. Did I? Uh-oh. We're gone. It wasn't me. I'll keep going because the purposes are similar. Uh, The purpose, though Israel was unfaithful, Yahweh's faithful love prevails. You could kind of make that the theme of uh, the purpose of all, all 12. Though Israel was unfaithful, Yahweh's faithful love will prevail. Literary structure. The literary structure of Hosea is kind of easy to, to remember because basically what he does, what the author does, is that the first three chapters is a human story, an adulterous wife and a faithful husband. And then chapters 4 through 14 now give you the point of the story, an adulterous Israel and a faithful Lord. And so really Hosea is almost like a living parable. It, it's, it's Hosea living this parable with his wife, Gomer, and, um, and then God explaining that that story represents his relationship with Israel. He passages. Hosea 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We said this when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Salvation has never been by sacrifices. Salvation has never been by works. It has always been by faith. The sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament were not to save people. It was to be obedient to God and to demonstrate atonement ultimately brought through Christ. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And of course, that is then applied to Christ as well in Matthew chapter 2. And you have the book of Joel. We have, there we go. Historical and theological themes, the day of the Lord. You have the temple, Zion, Jerusalem, the nations. Joel reads like kind of a miniature introduction to the book of Revelation. And it makes it very, very clear. You cannot read Joel without seeing that God's program for Israel is not done that he is still working, he's still doing things, and that his program for the nations is not done. What's the purpose of Joel? Divine judgment will be visited upon Judah and the nations in the coming day of the Lord. And so you have, and I do hold to the near and the far fulfillment view, that there are near fulfillments. Uh, For example, in Joel, God promises that I will return to you the years that the locusts have eaten. God sent a literal locust plague And he says, I'll return that to you. But ultimately, that's fulfilled in the end times. The literary structure, you have the day of the Lord in retrospect, looking back. And then you have the day of the Lord in prospect, uh, meaning the the future implications of the day of the Lord. Just a little side note, and this makes no difference whatsoever. uh, The Hebrew Bible has four chapters in Joel. Chapter two is divided. Our English Bible only has three. So if you're ever flipping through an English or a Hebrew Bible and wonder why there's four instead of three, now you know. You can say, I remember that day in BTI where I was told that. Key passages. Chapter 2, 28 through 32, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the day of the Lord. Now, this is very interesting. The, the charismatic movement has utterly decimated any sense of hermeneutic here. Um, that's what they do with everything because it's not about hermeneutics. It's about uh, defining truth for themselves. But in chapter 2, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
And immediately then you also see these promises of the, of the moon being darkened and the judgments of God coming. This is a classic example of what we would call a partial fulfillment. Peter preached that Joel 2 was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, that the Spirit of God was being poured out. And that is true. Is it a complete fulfillment? No. How do we know this? The book of Joel says that there will be a day when God pours out His Spirit on all flesh. Every human being living on earth will be filled with the Spirit of God. Did that happen at Pentecost? No. It's a foretaste of that. It hasn't even happened yet. And certainly then there's that gap. We haven't seen uh, the, the day of the Lord. I know living in Bakersfield, you see the, the, the moon red and whatever other colors it turns. And you kind of go, did I get my eschatology wrong here? Uh, but it hasn't happened yet. And so we want to be really clear that, yes, God puts gaps in prophecies. Uh, we talked about these before. But the Zechariah 9 prophecy of, of the Messiah riding to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And we, we all know, oh yeah, that happened already. The very next phrase, and decimating his enemies. He hasn't done that yet. So that's a clear pattern. So we want to be clear that, the, that Joel is important in promising the Holy Spirit. And that's the passage that Peter chose to preach on the day of Pentecost. And then you have chapter 3, verses 9 through 15 Probably other than, the, than Revelation 9, Revelation 16, um, and Revelation 20, probably the greatest description of the Battle of Armageddon. Um, well, there's Zechariah 14 also, but in Joel, this is a great description. Uh, six or seven verses really describing the judgment of the nations in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. And then you have Amos. Not a professional preacher. He's in Judah, that's the southern kingdom, but he's called to the north to minister to Israel. Historical and theological themes, the inevitability of the judgment of the Lord. And Israel demonstrates her unfaithfulness through social injustice. There it is again, that when you're not faithful to the law of God, then people hurt and society hurts. And so what's the, what's the purpose of Amos? God, Yahweh, will not relent from judging Israel. He won't relent. Now, you have an interesting literary structure. Now, we talk about structure a lot, and, and you might say, why is that important? Well, it should be important to us um, because it's important to God. God made every book of the Bible to have structure. It's not random, um, which is interesting. Uh, I've read parts of the Koran. You know what the Koran is like? It's like somebody took a bunch of verses from the Old Testament because 75% of it is plagiarized from the Old Testament. And just kind of blew them up and, and glued them back together. There's no story. There's no co continuity. There's no structure that makes any sense whatsoever. Why? Because it was written by men. The Bible's written by God, so structure matters. But what I wanted to tell you is sometimes one of the easiest ways to discern structure, besides just reading an introduction to a Bible book, is just to count how many times things happen. And that tells you the structure. The book of Amos is a great example of this. You have eight prophecies of judgment in chapters 1 and 2. Then you have three sermons against Israel in chapters 3 through 6. You have five visions of punishment in chapters 7 through 9, verse 10. And you have five promises of Israel's restoration to the rest of the book. Now I find it interesting that God used Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah. So he's, he's a shepherd. Uh, he'd be a farmer also. In other words, he's a man of the land. He's a man who's in touch with the, the major economy of the land. What, one of the issues that we have in our nation now is that we've lost touch with the idea of land. Just 100 years ago, 90% of the people in the United States were farmers or some sort of rural workers. And that's flip-flop now. Well, my contention from the predictions of the Millennial Kingdom is that that's going to go back. And it's interesting to me that God chooses a man like Amos, a shepherd, a farmer, to give the single most important paragraph to understanding all of the Old Testament. And here it is. Amos 9 13 through 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. There's an entire theological notion that says that land is is symbolic, it is theoretical, and that this is actually speaking of the church. How much more specific can God get? He's talking about grapes and hills and vineyards and gardens and fruit. Plowmen, reapers. How do you make all of that symbolic? One of the rules of interpreting scripture is that you don't make something symbolic unless it's ridiculous. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's not going to happen, so that's symbolic. Is there anything ridiculous or out of the ordinary about a plowman and a reaper and grapes and vineyards and wine and gardens and fruit? No, that's all wonderful. The only thing that seems ridiculous is the fact that stuff's growing so fast that they're catching up to each other. Can you imagine how exciting it was to Amos, a man of the land, to hear this from God? A man who has had to take sheep around looking for some pasture that's not, not scorched by the sun, who's had to plow a field that's filled with rocks and had to reap a harvest that's one-third of what it should be because water didn't come. How exciting would that be to him? Why is that the key to understanding the whole Old Testament? Because the Old Testament begins with God's formation of Israel to be the nation through which the gospel of Jesus Christ is promulgated and to be his special chosen nation. And it ends, the Old Testament ends in flames, doesn't it? It's like this horrible ending to a movie and you think, what's going to happen next? And the credits roll and you go, really? But Amos says, no, that's not the end. All will be restored in the way that God has, has promised. So that's the key to understanding the Old Testament that God will restore all the things that he said he would do. How about the book of Obadiah? Just takes a, a page in your Bible, maybe two. Historical and theological themes. The sin of Edom. Now, why would God care about Edom that much? Well, they're the descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. They're descendants of Abraham. And so he expected more of them. They have sins of arrogance. They're they're not helping Israel. When did they first not help Israel? Numbers chapter 20. When did they second not help or last not help Israel? 800 years later. Book of Habakkuk. So that's been their history. Just not helping their brothers. You have the theme of the day of the Lord. Edom is representative now of any nation that would stand against Israel. So the, the lesson in Obadiah is don't be a nation like Edom because God will destroy them. And then you have the restoration of Israel. Verse 17, this is the the high point of the book. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. What's the purpose of the book? The judgment of Yahweh will fall on Edom because of her lack of brotherly kindness. But Israel will be restored. By the way, uh, if you look at the land that God promised to Abraham back in uh, Genesis 17, you have boundaries. If you see the land in Ezekiel 40 through 48 as described, uh, Edom gets swallowed. And in fact, uh, all of Syria gets swallowed. A good chunk of Egypt gets swallowed. Lebanon is gone. Um, that's all Israel, according to the Bible. So uh, it's, if you say, well, I believe in preserving Israel, if you want to be really biblical about it, we also believe that someday God will give them back their rightful actual boundaries. And Edom is, they're gone. They become part of Israel. Jerusalem owns them. Jonah. Jonah is unusual, if I can get to it. Wait, I'm, I'm poking. There, there it goes. Whoop. All right. I love and hate technology all at the same time. I told somebody last week, we're going to have 
unplugged Sunday one of these days where we just unplug everything. James can take the day off that, that day. Now, Jonah's unusual. It's almost all narrative. It's a story. That's why out of the, uh, out of the, the 12 prophets, if you grew up in Sunday school, how many of you did a coloring page on Obadiah? Nobody did. Uh, Jonah's like a, a Sunday school dream, right? It's, you got a whale and you've got, uh, you've got plants and you've got things you can color. But it's very unusual in that it's a story. Historical and theological themes, the sovereignty of God. God is the primary mover through the story and, and God appoints things through the story. He makes them happen. It's very encouraging on the sovereignty of God. Who speaks first? God does. Who speaks last? God does. And he gets the first and the last word. And you have the compassion of God. Jonah didn't want Nineveh to experience grace, but God did. Now, let me, let me kind of... Well, I'll do this when we get to the purpose. So you have the compassion of God. You have the disobedience of Jonah. He's disobedient at the beginning. He's disobedient at the end. He's a picture of a stiff-necked and self-righteous person. And the irony is that he is simultaneously the most... Uh, uh, sinful and disobedient and the most successful prophet in the history of Israel. He goes and he preaches a sermon half-heartedly and hundreds of thousands of people repent. He left Israel trying to resign. He even attempted suicide. But God delivered him in a very strange way with the, in the belly of a large fish. Then you have the salvation being offered to Gentiles. Book of Jonah it was great to read to a Gentile. It was great to read to an unsaved person who thinks that maybe God won't save me because Jonah says that God will go after people that are not his people. You have the sailors' repentance on the ship. They become worshipers of Yahweh. And there's a, there's a lot of debate. Was it real repentance unto salvation or was it just fear of, of death? I think it was repentance unto salvation. You have Nineveh. It might be possible that these are not genuine conversions, at least not on a large scale. A, a generation later, God comes against Nineveh in judgment through Nahum, a long generation, about a century. Maybe the repentance was some sort of humble contrition just to save them from immediate earthly wrath, uh, but not from uh, eternal wrath. So there's two ways you, can, you could uh, preach through this idea in Jonah. You could say, Hey, you can try to get your life right with God without coming to faith in Christ, but ultimately it'll end in your judgment because you needed to be right with Christ through his death and through his blood. The other way you can preach it is, look what it took for the, this, this nation to come to faith, the threat of destruction. And you have that same threat of destruction living over you, and that is the lake of fire. And so will you be like them? So you can kind of preach Nineveh either way, and it, and it goes okay. The book ends with a question, though. It's very interesting. It, it leaves us to question kind of our, our own attitude toward the unsaved. It leads us to question and challenge our own tendency toward self-righteousness. This is God's question to Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Probably means those are just the, the core people in the city or there would be many more all around the city who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Why is the word cow the last thing in Jonah? Because God is sovereign, and he even takes care of his own creation. You know, it's not creation's fault that mankind sinned. That's why the book of Romans promises that creation will be restored. It's not their fault. When your dog bites you on the ankle, you blame Adam, not the dog. We live in a sinful creation because of mankind. But it ends with this question. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh? Now here's the interesting thing. We'll do this in the purpose. Here's the purpose. While Israel was ineffective, Yahweh brought salvation to repentant Gentiles. What was the city of Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the, basically the sworn enemy of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Who is being unfaithful and refuses to repent and, and is absolutely recalcitrant and hardened in their heart? God's chosen nation of Israel. And so what does he do? He turns to Gentiles 
120,000 of them repent. Does that sound like a familiar story? That's the story of the church of Jesus Christ. Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek, then to the Gentile. And so that's the, that's the story of the book of Acts that we see, uh, we see first the church focused on the Jews and then turning to the Gentiles. That's the story of the ministry of Christ that he turns to the Jews, to the Jews, to the Jews and they reject him as a nation so he turns to the Gentiles. So the book of Jonah gives us a picture of what is to come. Key passage, Romans two, uh, Jonah 2, 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a great verse for us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is of Him. It is through Him. And just briefly, I won't go into detail on this. The literary structure is just very interesting. It's a very, very well put together book. The big picture is that he gets two commissions. First commission in chapter 1, the second commission in chapter 3. There's some differences. In chapter 1, he rejects the commission and runs away. In chapter 3, he accepts the commission. I think three days in the belly of a whale or a large fish will, will help soften your heart for a while. In the first part, sailors submit to God. In the second part, Nineveh submits to God. In the first part, God uses a large fish to rescue Jonah. And Jonah prays, thanking Yahweh for saving his life. In the second part, Jonah prays, complaining to God for saving Nineveh. So in the first part, he prays to be rescued and thanks God for rescue. In the second part, he complains that God rescued Nineveh the same way he was rescued. And then, strangely enough, God uses a plant and a worm to teach Jonah a lesson. So, interesting structure. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And it's very encouraging to us that God is sovereign. One more, Book of Micah. Book of Micah, very popular at Christmas time. Historical and theological themes, the sins of Jacob, a coming ruler. And I think it's interesting that as we get farther and farther through the Book of the Twelve to the end of our Old Testament, the theme of a coming ruler uh, crescendos. You see that coming more and more until uh, until Zechariah and Malachi just are are climactic in their uh, presentation of a coming Christ. Jerusalem desperately needed a righteous leader, and they don't have one. So God promises to bring one. What's the purpose? Righteous Yahweh would judge his unrighteous people, but the coming ruler will fulfill Yahweh's promise to David and to Abraham. And then the literary structure. Very simple. You have the prediction of retribution, chapters 1, 2, and 3. You have the prediction of restoration, chapters 4 and 5. And then you have a plea for repentance in chapters 6 and 7. Let me just read you a few key verses here. Micah 4, verse 3. He shall judge between many nations and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. If that sounds familiar, that is the millennial kingdom reign of Christ. All of those criteria fit what we see in Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, certainly in Revelation 20. There's a faulty argument that says, well, the, the, the so-called millennial kingdom is only described in Revelation 20. That, that's not true. It's all over the Old Testament. It, I don't know if I'll get to do this, but if somebody said, if you could write one more book, what would it be? I want to trace the millennial kingdom prophecies from Genesis all the way through Revelation because they're everywhere. And you can put together a society that is so glorious. What's glorious here? He judges between many peoples, shall decide for strong nations far away. We hear, do you ever sometimes feel helpless about all the horrible things happening in other parts of the world? Now you feel helpless about all the horrible things happening in Sacramento. And it's just, it, it gets closer to us, but we feel like we can't do anything about it. But the ruler of the world will judge every nation worldwide. There's no place to hide. That's glorious. There won't be any wars. Why? Because Christ will stop them before they start. There won't be anybody even learning how to, to make war anymore. No more boot camp. No more having men who are scarred for life because they have to take the lives of others in defense of their nation. 
That's done. Micah 4.3. Micah 5.2. This is, becomes very popular at Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then, just in case anybody says, well, in the Old Testament, faith was external. Micah 6 verse 8 says otherwise. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What is that? That's the reality of an internal faith. A requirement to have a genuine faith in God that, of course, we know from the New Testament that He gives as a gift. So, we won't get to the other six for another month or so, but it'll just sound just like this because they're the same themes, but we'll get to some of my favorites. Uh, uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah are particular favorites of mine. So why don't we pray, and then I want to ask you also just to start to prepare your hearts for next week. We'll get into our three-session time of evangelism, and I think it's always good for us to refresh uh, our own commitment to the lost around us um, because we're, we're, we're here to be salt and light. And so I'm asking you to pray about that, uh, that you'll be inspired in the next three sessions. Let's pray for just a moment together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We thank you for this Lord's Day. And really, we're just kind of getting warmed up right now, just hearing a little bit about these minor prophets, Lord, who are minor in length, but certainly not in breadth and in importance. Lord, I thank you for all who are here now. I thank you for all in the various buildings all around us, Lord, that are here to worship Christ. I pray that this Lord's Day would be special and would be a joy and a delight to you as you see your people gathered together, lifting holy hearts and our voices and our minds and our spirits up to you, Lord. May we do so in unity, with humility, and with great joy because Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was raised from the dead and even now intercedes for us at your right hand. And for that, we give you thanks, both now and for all eternity. Thank you for these minor prophets that show us that your plan is right on track. We love you and thank you for your sovereignty, for your total control of all things, and we look forward to the consummation of your redemptive plan for mankind. Amen.